So when the world around you is falling apart, like the rest of the world today, how do you make sense of it? And art is such a useful tool for that. In the era of climate change, how can we imagine better futures? An Ecotopian Lexicon is a collaborative volume of short, engaging essays that offer ecologically productive terms, drawn from other languages, science fiction, and subcultures of resistance, to envision what could be. The book connects 30 authors and 14 artists from a range of backgrounds and locations, and three of them are here in discussion today. This conversation was recorded in August 2020. Hello, everyone. My name is Michelle, Michelle Kunstutfong. I am located in Hong Kong and I am a practicing visual artist. The title of my piece is Na Huo. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Sam Solnick. Um, I'm currently in Liverpool in the UK, where I teach at the local university, and I wrote the Apocalypso entry. Hi, I'm Karis Boak, and I'm located in Vermont in the northeast of the United States, and I'm currently teaching at St. Michael's College and affiliated with the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. My entry is titled Plant Time. Let me start by saying why I got involved in this project, and this is Michelle. It's actually started in Alaska out of all places. I was in Alaska for an artist residency under the theme climate change. We visited eight communities there and on that same residency was another playwright, Chantal Bilodeau, and she introduced me to this project and that's how I got involved because all my works revolves around building a futuristic world in year 2084. And that presents the geopolitical maps in, in the, the age of Anthropocene. So the mandate of this book just completely echoes my own practice. And there was no point in me in saying no. And that's how I became involved in this project. Um, hi, Sam here. So I guess one of the things that piqued my curiosity about this book was that I'm generally a fan of books or collections that bring together short essays on individual words and concepts. And I think part of that's the influence of a book called Keywords by Raymond Williams when I was an undergrad, which is a little bit dated now and, and probably more popular on this side of the Atlantic um, than the UK than in the USA. But um, it was great because, you know, there were these one page essays on a single concept that helped you think through things. So that appealed. But in general, I just thought the collection sounded really cool and that its interdisciplinary nature, um, I guess, would mean that people beyond my specialism would read it, which isn't something that you can say about most stuff you write as an academic. I mean, that's the, the great tragedy. You spend your time slaving away writing these journal articles um, that no one ever reads. And I found the idea of an ecotopian lexicon really fascinating because it, it brings together, if you like, this idea of the utopian, um, which we know means kind of both a good place and a no place with, uh, with the word um, eco, right? With this 
this word that gives us the sense of dwelling place or the collection of uh, different organisms in the environments. And as I was writing it, I, I kept on having that idea in mind that we were we were writing this kind of guidebook or map or, if you like, spellbook for imagining and articulating a kind of ecological future that doesn't exist yet, but that we might want. And to me, that's just seemed a really fascinating idea. Hello, Karis here. Um, so I got involved in this project uh, sort of in a similar way to both Michelle and Sam, which is that I saw the call for contributions and it lined up so perfectly with things I was thinking about and working on at the time that I couldn't say no. Um, and part of that was um, noticing the ways that my so I'm an anthropologist and I work with white herbalists in the northeast of the US and um, a lot of the folks that I work with are deeply invested in changing the world and in changing what healthcare looks like and in changing what relationships look like. Um, I'm personally invested in those things too. And so the opportunity to work uh, on a project where we take language and shift it around or draw on conceptual frameworks outside of what's already available to us uh, in English was really exciting for me to, to think, well, what, what are some ways that we can learn, that English speakers can learn from other lexicons, other, other linguistic frameworks to reform our relationship to other humans, to uh, other than humans, to the planet itself, to our lives uh, even to our own bodies. Um, so this this rethinking and reimagining is something that has compelled uh, my various practices throughout life. And so uh, in a way, my plant time entry is um, not only linked to the anthropological work of my life, but also to the to the activist work that I do as uh, as an herbalist and as a medic um, and and also as a teacher saying what are what are how do how do we as scholars as artists as teachers as older adults make space for folks that are coming up in this world and are younger to figure out how to live well uh on a planet that is suffering that is full of suffering it's always been full of suffering in some ways but now finds itself in a particular kind of moment with climate change so the whole project to me is is an, an exciting rethinking of what it means to reimagine the world in a better way. Well, I have to confess, I I received this book in the mail maybe after Christmas, and I hope I'm not the only one in the universe who does this because I flipped through the book, I thought it looked great, and then it stayed on my bookshelf for months untouched. <laughs> And a few weeks ago, partly to prepare for this podcast and partly for self-interest, I started really reading the book and I thought it was really good. And when I read it, I, I found it like a refreshing new agey anthology, but backed by thoughtful scholarship in the 21st century. It's very timely. It addresses the much needed global perspective on a global issue, climate change, while still being sensitive 
with sensitive areas such as cultural appropriation. And what I really loved about this book is each piece is short and sweet. My husband is a recovering academic, so I'm very familiar with academic writing. <laughs> so what I love with this book is that the reader is not overwhelmed with an onslaught of dry academic language. I, I didn't feel tired and needed a nap after reading each piece. Instead, I felt excited and rejuvenated to read another piece or look up the new terms in each essay. I found this book is not one where you read from start to finish, but rather you should dip into it when the mood is right. Ponder and come back for another long word when the mood is right again. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just want to second Michelle that I'm a terrible one for for getting books, flicking them through, ignoring them, flicking to the back, wondering what I should read, reading half of page 99. And, and then actually it was a real pleasure to just kind of um, settle down with this and take some alternate parts paths through it. And that's the lovely thing about this, right? That um, the nature of the entries means that you can read it from A to Z or you can follow, if you like, your your lines of desire or interest or indeed randomness through the different concepts. Um, and I like that all these concepts are loan words, right? You know, it's not a list saying these are the words through which you need to understand the Anthropocene or, or whichever word we want to give our, our um, current socio-ecological political moment, but rather by being a kind of diverse interdisciplinary book that brings together everything from um, science fiction to different languages to, to dolphin breath in its <laughs> or dolphin speech in its first um, its first entry it offers us this series of imaginative words and alternate concepts for opening up um, our thinking and our imaginative processes and in doing so opens up different sorts of possibility right and this comes back to this idea of a language for the ecotopian a language for a future that doesn't exist yet that might never exist but that we can work towards um, if we hope for it if we desire it if we want it and it kind of um you know uh, brent and matthew in their introduction um talks it talk about it as opening up um, these different other worlds that might be possible, even if they're only imaginary, these possible alternative futures that um, we can only see, we can see, but only in a kind of um, refracted funhouse mirror or, or kind of like through a glass darkly. And that's why I think it's a, it's, it's not just a fascinating book, but also a fun one. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, um, I, it's sort of a relief to hear that both of you, my, my co-authors, co-contributors to this volume also um, received your copies and then, and then took an, a nice long break before really diving in. Um, uh, it is so beautifully put together. Um, and, and I find, uh, I'm glad that you brought up the paths, Sam, because I think that the paths is one of the things that makes this unique. So it's the, the book is organized sort of in a standard lexical way, alphabetically. Uh, um, 
with using using the the English language alphabet, of course, um, because the book is in English except where it is in Delphic or um, uh, other languages. Um, and then we and then we have the opportunity to hear or to read what uh, what the symbols of dolphin language sound like or feel like. Um, I, so so it's organized alphabetically. And it's also organized in these paths, which I, I believe the editors put together. Um, and the paths track, uh, sort of link across loan words. So the paths have um, tracks like resistance, like dispositions, like perception. So there are five entries under dispositions, for instance, which is where your piece is, Sam, and four entries under perception and i think that these these paths these alternate paths that help you track through the book um to organize concepts is, is a really useful way to move through the the text and the images that are here because they are so diverse yeah, the the words themselves the concepts themselves are so diverse they're not all about the quote-unquote ecological they're not all about the you know quote unquote natural they they sort of they're so wide ranging in in the ways and they come from speculative fiction they come from uh, spiritual and religious traditions of the actually existing world they come from animal worlds they come from you know just all over the place so the way that that other path organizes things I think is a really unique um, organizational scheme. Uh, I also just wanted to highlight that point about imagination, which I think is a key element, and I referenced this a little bit earlier, the key element about what this this text and the and the images in it or the the art that was created in conversation with the texts uh, offers is is a rethinking of what is possible. and And the editors say this in their introduction. They bring up this, this idea, I'll just read this short passage that says, fascists and totalitarians understood that by restricting the imagination and consideration of alternative possibilities of politics, policy, and social life, citizens would resign themselves to the order of things, thereby enabling further manipulation by political and financial elites. And certainly in a long context of climate change, we've seen a lot of this. Um, but I think in this particular moment, I'm located in the United States and this particular moment, the importance of rethinking what is possible is, is very much on my mind and on the minds of a lot of people in the context of uprisings against police brutality and the criminal mismanagement of, of coronavirus. So the last thing I'll say about, about this is that Brenton Matthew, the editors, also referenced this rallying cry, Another World is Possible, that is used in activist movements to remind us that we can rethink how things are done and how we are on the planet. Um, and I wanted to just highlight the, the first part of that chant as it has been chanted at protests I've been at, which is, we are unstoppable. And that implies that, that beginning phrase, we are unstoppable, followed by another world is possible, implies and against whom. We are unstoppable against whom. And so I think part of what this book opens up is, is a conversation about how do we be in a relationship with 
the adversaries of thriving, the adversaries of life that that enables us to move beyond the death dealing of white supremacist colonial capitalism, essentially. Uh, no big deal. <laughs> so so I, I see a lot of I see I do see a lot of hope and I think hope was the theme we were invited to reflect on today and I, I see a lot of hope coming out of these entries and the art that uh, accompanies them. This is Michelle. I'm going to talk about Sam's piece, Apocalypso. I'm gonna begin with reading my favorite sentence and then my second favorite sentence from his piece. Apocalypsos are text or visions that absorb but also disrupt apocalyptic futures. And here comes my second favorite sentence. Apocalypso fuses the alarm and concern surrounding discussions of environmental crisis with the sense of play, togetherness, and critique typical of the Calypso tradition. So after reading Sam's piece, to me, his piece is about the creative works that described, deconstruct, and usurped the idea of an apocalypse. And he quoted examples such as Evelyn Riley's poetry collection. What really, really drew me to Sam's piece is he mixes the sense of doom with a sense of play. And I think humor and this sense of wonder is so critical and essential in persisting in difficult situations. It's it's this childlike wonder or or this optimistic positive twist of the situation which which is humor that's really pull us through any adversity and art whether it's literary whether it's visual whether it's uh, music whether you whether it's food art is such an useful tool because it is essentially a concentration of human experiences and that includes humor and sense of wonder. So art is such an useful, such a useful tool to pull yourself through an adversity. Uh, adversity. It's a concentration of one's emotional and intellectual reactions to the world. So when the world around you is falling apart, like the rest of the world today, how do you make sense of it? And art is such a useful tool for that. And those who are blessed with the gift to manifest these reactions in an aesthetic form, the, the makers are transformed in that process. I myself have made artworks during very painful situations and that was very therapeutic for me but also those who partake as participants like an audience a reader a viewer they also engage in this intensely emotional or intellectual exercise so i i was 
very drawn to this notion of play, and especially this echoes my current research. I mentioned previously that my works revolves around building this narrative of a dystopian world in year 2084. There are five imaginary countries in this world: Northlandia, Dreamland, Contradictoria, the Aristocratic Union, and the Republic of Strata. And currently, I am researching for Northlandia, which is a narrative that takes place in the Arctic. And we all know that this summer, the Arctic hit thirty-eight degrees Celsius, which is a hundred degree Fahrenheit, which is warmer than Hong Kong, the subtropic. And I don't know how to continue with this narrative if I don't have this sense of play. Or have some sense of hope. How do we continue? So, I think this playfulness is so important. So, inside this narrative, there are fun things like a, a mountain-sized ice cream maker. There is a military troop that's made of fat jumping seals, and there are giant puffins. and And I think only with these playful, humorous. Gems that people can really respond to a difficult situation, and can really think and nurture hope. Otherwise, is too difficult. So, having shared a little bit of my own works with you, I'm really curious for Karis and Sam. How do you envision our world in a hundred years? What would be strikingly similar, and what would be permanently different?、Um, so, I mean, the, the the question's a tricky one because I mean, and not just because I, I flip quite quickly between the utopian and the dystopian, depending on whether I've had my coffee.、Um, <laughs> I think I find it very different to imagine the world as it as in、uh, you know to think planetarily.、Um, Hundred years in the future, and while at the same time acknowledging that that's a hugely important thing to do. So when I think about the future, it tends to be through、um, specific places, or you know, even on quite a small scale of a, of a single community or a single village. When I start thinking about planet Earth a hundred years in the future, it, it gets very apocalyptic very quickly. Even though I don't think、um, generally in apocalyptic terms, and To give you an example,、uh, you know, last week I was、um, socially distancing, but also visiting my、um, my parents in the village where they live in the east of England,、um, where many of the houses are hundreds of years old. You know that you can you can actually see the evolution of this quite small dwelling of about four hundred people across time. And in thinking about that in a hundred years' time. Um, I don't think it'll have changed that much, apart from there'll be, you know, different sorts of vehicles on the high street, which itself only has one shop and one pub, two pubs actually.、Um, but then it's also in the east of England, which is one of the the regions of the UK that's most at risk from flooding. And I was thinking about this as I was walking across the beach there. That in many ways it would be the same, except some of it might be missing.、Um, and that was both kind of <laughs> comforting and horrifying. We're so、um, clued up into how to think a kind of techno 
futurism, right? I can imagine the city of the future, you know, that might be, you know, if we were to build a city that and future-proof it for a hundred years time, there are all sorts of interesting and engaging types of architectural and social practice and theory that helps us imagine what that'll look like. But I find it quite hard to imagine what the city I grew up in, London, will look like in a hundred years time. Um, so I think there's always this tension between um, thinking the future and thinking it imaginatively, as you described so well, Michelle, um, and thinking about the specificities of our kind of local and global realities. Um, I think to me that the main difference is, if I was thinking kind of practically rather than aesthetically or imaginatively, would be in, in transport, in agriculture and in um, energy production. And on the kind of transformations we'll see um, will be these sustainable projects on, you know, sustainable energy or um, projects on a scale that is kind of hitherto unseen, kind of like mega solar and mega wind. And that isn't necessarily something that we should be completely positive about, because we're always having to be asking these questions about what are the future economics of these um, mega techno engineering projects? Uh, what will the e ecological ramifications be on a planet that will be in some way warmer? Um, and also thinking more positively, what types of uh, emergent and diverse and celebrated um, ecosystems might arise in these kind of changed climates. And of course, there will be this kind of intersection of the old and the new, you know, in a, in a, in a relatively densely populated country like the UK, let alone uh, a city like a city state like Hong Kong, like what sorts <laughs> of intersection um, between the old and the new, between the technological and the low tech between the ecological and the economic will be fine, or will we find. Um, so when you ask what things are going to be like, um, you know, in 2084 or a hundred years in the future, the, the fact is, I, I don't really know. That was a long winded way of saying that. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I agree. I, um, this is, uh, this is really interesting. It's the first time I just want to name that this is the first time the three of us have had a conversation. And so I'm finding it uh, delightful and also somewhat eerie, uh, the overlaps in our thinking, um, especially the, the point that you make there about the flip between utopian and dystopian thinking on any given day. Um, I have to say uh, in the U.S. right now, for me, uh, it is hard to think like I, I, I have a really hard time even if I can imagine what I would want a hundred years in the future to look like, I have a hard time believing that it will happen. Um, uh, <laughs> which, which is a, which is a sort of troubling thing to say for me because I am in various different ways committed to trying to make the world better. And yet here we are in in this moment where on the Gulf Coast of this continent, there is a, a predicted storm surge coming that is uh, has been labeled unsurvivable by the National Weather Service. Unsurvivable storm surge from Hurricane Laura. It's obviously a linked to climatological changes. Um, and here in the Northeast, you know, in the last decade we've been hit by hurricanes that have come up the east coast and vermont is not known for its hurricane season but we're seeing more of them you know so so i want to think about what does i really appreciate the way you framed it sam that um that like thinking locally is somewhat more 
straightforward them thinking um, at the scale of the globe. And I think there's actually some interesting political history behind behind why it's easier for us to think locally around like what stories came out of the Cold War, for instance, about what a future looks like globally and, and how these have seeped into our common narrative about what's possible. I think the migration patterns that are already happening because of climate change are going to vastly reshape what population centers look like and are going to, and they already have, right? Or, and they're going to change what rural places look like. And the, the, what I'm thinking about right now is, for instance, that there are a lot of people in cities uh, on the East Coast who are who have access to wealth and are buying property in more rural areas because of the reality of the threat of coronavirus being higher in densely populated urban areas. And coronavirus is linked to climate change. You know, maybe it's not quite as direct as other things, but but it's fair to say that uh, the impacts of this pandemic are related to and exacerbated by existing climatological stresses. Um, I think I would, I would say that. I don't know if you all would agree, but no, that's... Second, seconded. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for the vote of confidence there. Um, so we're already seeing migration out of, well, I'm thinking about California right now, uh, folks getting evacuated again and again for wildfires, people's homes being destroyed again and again because it's a, a fire-dependent uh, ecosystem and the, the way that fire is being managed doesn't work for the ecosystem. So then we have these catastrophic fires that destroy things and take lives. So just thinking about the, the place-based risks that are in different places and the place-based benefits, right? So a place like California has great agricultural soil. <laughs> Vermont doesn't have great agricultural soil, but we don't have massive wildfires. Um, and, and then, I don't know, my, I have a, a bunch of farmer friends whose potato crops failed utterly this year across the Northeast. There's a blight. Um, and so I'm thinking about food systems. So, so right now, it's not... <laughs> I, I am, you know, working on a, a sort of small scale track of optimism and hope in the context of building good relationships and working on noticing what can create the foundations of a, a livable future, a thriving future for as many people as possible, as many beings as possible. I find it really hard to think about that question. Um, so I also don't know. And, uh, and I think that concept that you brought up, Sam, of future proofing Wow, what a what a what a phrase! Uh, what a juicy thing to talk about. <laughs> Thank you for the question, Michelle. My pleasure. I also think we three of us should somehow manage a coffee after this because every time I give a public presentation or lecture of my work, someone always in the audience will ask if my works are dystopian or utopian, and my my standard answer is, I think extreme utopian is dystopian, but I don't know where ecotopia stands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's such a such a great thought, though. Like, where do we locate the ecotopian? Um, which I'm sure for some might see might a kind of ecotopian future might seem 
initially dystopian, although um, uh, we might put them as the kind of adversaries of thriving, um, which is a, I, I love this idea of thriving that you've brought up a, a couple of times, Karis. The, the ecotopian, wherever it is, I, I, it's not a stable thing, right? It's, it's, you know, thinking ecologically means consistently thinking about changing relations, changing relations between different sorts of organisms and different sorts of spaces and places and that you know utopia often seems quite static and indeed if you 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 look at kind of there's a reason why people prefer dystopian fiction to utopian fiction generally it's because utopianism um in art can be a little bit boring um and it's actually the fractures where the kind of dystopian emerges within the utopian or the utopian utopian possibilities emerge out of what seems initially dystopian that become more interesting and perhaps that's where we might locate our concept of the ecotopian. Think how scary it is to live in the brave new world. Yeah. Mm. God, I, I don't know if I want to live there. No, I think I wouldn't mind a holiday there. It was always my thought. <laughs> <maybe not. laughs> so Karis's entry for the book is is plant time and following Michelle I kind of wanted to you know once she came up with the idea of of selecting your favorite sentence I sort of t- I've, I've turned back to the book and I've been rapidly like flipping through the chat <laughs> I've actually highlighted so many sentences I wasn't sure which I'm going to do um but I think I, I found my two sentences amongst the many excellent sentences in this entry um, so plant time is, is a is a word that comes from um some herbalists in in North America, and I think these are two very revealing um, sentences in summarizing summarizing it. So the first is that plant time is a bodily practice that enacts a shift in the sensory attunement, and that's the word I want to come back to: attunement of the herbalist body as she approaches vegetally, as in plant-based life. And the second one, and I think it's really revealing is that if Western herbalists articulate their own experience of a world of boundaries, borders, and notions of of linear progress as a challenging one, characterized by the unstoppable cascade of calendar time, plant time, as opposed to calendar time, describes the slower cyclical time lives that our vegetal kin inhabit. And so I really love this entry because it gives this idea of a, of a, of a vegetal mode of time um, where your concept is also kind of engaged with this idea of embodied practice. So our responsibility to our vegetable kin becomes this, this mode of attunement, which I think is a lovely way of thinking not just um, about the relations or the way, we, uh, the way we kind of respond to plants and their secret lives um but about how we might do that how we might sit with our our vegetable kin um and it, it reminds us that our our idea our notion of time is profound you know this steady progress of microsoft outlook, outlook inbox calendars that bombard us with emails uh, this relentless march into into futurity for, for good or for ill is so profoundly anthropocentric and that there are these alternative epistemologies and ways of you know and concomitant ways of um interacting that might help us negotiate or think or feel our way towards otherness particularly the the otherness of plants and i guess because because i'm always thinking about aesthetics um 
this entry kind of provoked me to think about ways in which plants are represented in the foreground and, and their timescales are represented in the foreground rather than being kind of like relegated to the as, as kind of passive background where which humans move through so if you think of the tradition of landscape painting of you know um, someone walking across a landscape which is static and the alternate to that which are modes of representation that focus on the plants themselves um, and I was thinking about you know how if you like I, I experienced a version of plant time when I was young when I watched um, a, a a famous nature documentary, which is a little bit dated now, which is David Attenborough's Secret Life of Plants. And it kind of extensively used time-lapse, um, you know, this was, the, this was the early 90s, so it seemed kind of more novel then, um, time-lapse photography and time-lapse film to really show you the transformations in, in landscape, um, both on a kind of um, diurnal but level and a seasonal level. Um, and ever since watching that, I've always had this sense of, you know, when I'm really, you know, when as a city boy, whenever I go out into the fields or anything, that the plants are always growing as I look at them, even though I know they're not, um, which I guess is my, my first real attunement to the nature of plant time. Um, and the other thing that this entry really made me think about was how we need to register different scales. So just as... Um, there's a different scale of temporality for plants. There's also a different spatial scale for one, uh, for them. And not just individual plants, but their modes of interconnection um, within an ecosystem, particularly those sorts of symbiotic interconnections where we find, say, plants working with um, fungi under the ground. And we can't see that kind of massive level of symbiotic relations with our kind of anthropocentric spectacles on. Um, so I love this idea of we need to attune ourselves to both the kind of temporal and the spatial scales of non-human life and non-human flourishing, um, which is, of course, um, our own flourishing too. I'll move on to, to my questions for both of you. Um, I guess this loosely related to this idea of symbiosis, which is, do we, do we hope for ourselves or do we hope for others? And if we hope for others, which others do we hope for? Do we hope for ourselves or for others? That question made me think of the only, well, one of the only two things that tell you the truth. The first one is your wedding vow. The other one is the safety announcement on, on, on the airplane. So they always say, parents, take care of yourself be before you take care of your children and infants. And I think this is the same attitude we should adopt for the flight of life. If we do not take care of ourselves, we do not have the right or ability to take care of others. So if we don't have hope for ourselves, how can we hope for others? And I'm going to share a little personal story with you. And I, I hope that would indirectly answer this question. Hong Kong is a highly, highly, highly consumer society. There are ads telling you to get a loan in order to go shopping all over the place. It's this, this culture, this consumer culture that 
drove me mad. And uh, that was partly, that partly drove me to my current environmental artworks. So at one point, a few years ago, I stopped using plastic bags completely. And one time I asked my mother to bring me a pair of shoes from home. And my mother is the type of person who thinks one plastic bag around your food is not clean enough. You need a plastic bag and then another plastic bag to protect from the first plastic bag and then a third plastic bag to protect from the second plastic bag. And then on top of that, you you use a plastic carrying bag to carry all your three plastic bags. So when she brought me the pair of shoes, I was shocked. She wrapped this pair of used shoes in newspaper and then in a cloth bag. And I said, oh, isn't that too dirty? And my mother said, well, I know plastic bags bad, right? And that was that. Was that. But what I wanted to say in this convoluted way is when you hope for yourself, when you change for yourself, you are hoping and changing for other people. So start with yourself. That's that's a really great um, illustration of that. Thank you, Michelle. I, <laughs> I appreciate that a lot. And um, thinking about this relationship between caring for the self and caring for others. Um, I'm, I'm, I was thinking as you were speaking about how the the two are intertwined. And I guess I don't think of them as separate acts because, so uh, one of the things I do as an educator is I run experiential education programs. Part of them at least often goes out into um, the wilderness or into trekking or hiking situations. And especially in those contexts, one of the things we say to the youth on these programs is self-care is group care because it is, you know, if we can figure out what it means to take care of ourselves, not just the obvious food, water, shelter, those are really important. And especially with youth reminding them to eat and drink water is really important. But also beyond that, like what each of us on the planet, each of the humans on the planet has different specific needs, right? Some people prefer to be alone most of the times and and nurture themselves that way. And some people uh, really have a hard time being alone and thrive with more company and more interaction. And, and knowing just that kind of thing about ourselves seems really important for figuring out what does group care look like in conversation with self-care. Um, I, I love that you brought up this question of care with the question of hope, because I, I think they are totally intertwined. Thank you, Michelle. The idea of self-care has been largely sucked into this consumer culture that you were that you were referencing, uh, not just in Hong Kong, but but in any place that has a consumer economy and enough, enough people with enough access to wealth that they can do things like buy a bubble bath. Um, and that's, that's sort of the classic example now of what self-care is. It's like, oh, go take a bubble bath or have a glass of wine or, you know, get some good chocolate. These are at least in like the things that get marketed to me. Um, uh, not so much anymore because I click them as inappropriate on my social media feeds. <laughs> um, but the things that get marketed are, are 
are um, are not necessarily group care oriented self care. Don't get me wrong, I love a bubble bath, and at the same time, that's not the kind of care that actually shifts that shifts us towards uh, collective care as practices for our for our fellow humans and for other than humans as part of nature right so rethinking humanness as nature and not thinking of it as separate i think is really important in thinking about um what does it mean to hope and what does it mean to care practice care as active hope for ourselves and for one another so i guess i can't I, i don't separate the question of do we hope for ourselves and do we hope for others because they are related, as as you said, Michelle. Oh, thank you for saying that, Karis. Uh, so I have the pleasure of engaging more fully with um, Michelle's work of art entitled Noel. Michelle was responding to uh, Carolyn Fornoff's essay. The, so the work of art is, uh, I'll just describe it for folks that are not looking at it now. It's nine... Uh, eye sockets of critically endangered animals that are layered within each other and so that they share a pupil and the pupil is looking out through these nine sockets directly at the viewer of the of the work of art and there's different textures of skin around these eye sockets or fur or hair one of the things michelle says in her artist's statement is Most humans alive today are distant from non-human animals, except for domesticated pets and dead flesh packaged as calories. Nawal, as a loanword, offers an alternative way to think of our relationship with animals, one that is less arrogant, less certain, and more humble. As I was engaging with this, this work, one of the things that occurred to me was that I wanted to read Fornoff's piece and and in so just one short sentence from Fornoff's piece is that she says our self is also that of another. It's not only creating this relationship between the viewer and these nine animals who are looking out but also implying all the other sets of relationships that are outside of that. I'm just going to re- uh, respond sort of together with Sam's piece because uh, in his piece, he highlights the fact that the word apocalypse means unveiling or uncovering or revealing. And Michelle's work of art here has a total of nine veils, uh, which reminds me somewhat of Salome. But these nine veils are the eyelids of these critically endangered animals, which in this case are all open, gazing at the viewer. It, it really highlighted for me the difference, the distinction between a human gaze and an animal gaze and what kinds of power are inherent in whose different gazes. I'm curious for Michelle, how does the mutually exchanged gaze of this work, which does imply multiple bodies that are across or adjacent or regarding each other, how does it take up this question or this matter of Carolyn Fornoff's, the implication that our bodies are always also other bodies? Um, Ourself is that of another I'm thinking here also of the introduction to The Arts of Living on a Damaged Planet, uh, which was edited by Heather Swanson, Anna Singh, and some other excellent folks. Um, 
And the title of that introduction is Bodies Tumbled into Bodies. So even here in the title of that is this sense of separateness that is encompassed in relatedness or oneness or togetherness. And um, so one of my questions is how how do you think more about this, Michelle? Um, and uh, the other question I have is sort of for both of you, which is that so Sam, your piece invites us into the possibilities of simultaneous fracture or crisis and possibility or redirecting. And I want to ask, ask you both in the context of this work and your broader work in the context of coronavirus and global uprisings against fascism, um, what is uncovered? What is being uncovered? Where are the possibilities in the fractures? Well, thank you, Karis, for your question. In her article, Fornoff describes Nahualism as one spirit occupying more than one body, both human and non-human. And there is no hierarchy between the two. For me, my visual piece responding to this written piece is another way of leveling the playing field because we are so used to looking at the world tainted by our own spectacles, whether it's minorities, whether it's the mainstream looking at minorities or us humans looking at non-humans. And like I mentioned in the artist statement, I think we never ever look eye to eye into an animal except it's our pet or when you are threatened by a predator. And I bet people, 99.99% of human beings in this world have never gazed into an eye of an endangered animal. So for me to be able to gaze into their eye and for them to be able to respond back with their gaze for me is a way of flattening that hierarchy. So I think 2020 is a year that exposes all the um, social problems. I think COVID just pushed all our social problems onto the surface and to the extreme, whether it's poverty, whether it's healthcare or the lack of, whether it's social inequality, distribution of wealth, whether it's gender inequality, everything is coming out. And I, I don't know what is the hope. And, and of course, I do not have the solution. But I think what we should strive for is the balance, which is what I am currently thinking about for my own works as well because Northlandia is a surreal arctic tale of the precarious balance between human greed and the magical landscape, between the North and the rest of the world, and between self-preservation and the rapidly changing climate. And if you take out the word Northlandia, the imaginary country in my works, this describes our world today it's it's all about the balance and how do we achieve that thanks Michelle that's 
I mean, one of the things really emerging from this conversation is how much I want to <laughs> go and work through Michelle's back catalogue of artworks. Um, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> which which sound amazing. Um, oh God, how to how to? Ask, I mean, so this this is a it's a real doozy of a question, Karis. You know, the sense of what's being uncovered and you know what's being fractured and and what practices of hope do we notice in that uncovering or fracturing? Um, and I guess one way of, of thinking about it, or one hopeful way, is that what's being uncovered um, is possibility itself uh, in all its kind of manifold forms. And I know that sounds super wishy-washy um, and abstract, but when you talk about fracturing, that's crucial, because what's being fractured is the sense of the status quo, which manifests uh, in different ways in different parts of the globe. But in in many ways, our, our, our kind of, you know, our late capitalist status quo in what this period that we might call the Anthropocene is disastrous. It's ecocidal. It's 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 what Paul Preciado calls uh, the necropolitical, the, the politics of death with kind of massive, massive inequality, with um, climate change, with ecological despoilation. So that fracturing itself is crucial because then we get um, the emergence of the unexpected, the emergence of possibility. And that can happen really, really quickly in ways that catch us by surprise or catch many people by surprise. So thinking about, you know, even what's going on in the been going on in the last um, weeks and months, you know, protest, people taking to the streets, whether that's in Wisconsin or in Bristol or in Belarus. Um but that kind of um, fracturing and emergence does not necessarily kind of um, equate to hope, right? For that to become hope rather than defiance, you need um, a, a process where, whereby these kind of upswellings and these, this feeling of kind of communal outrage, which can uh, make us aware of possibilities for kinship or community or resistance that we haven't seen, they also have to meet um, and kind of interbreed with or intersect with um, actual practice, actual policy, so that we can have sustained action and sustained change. They have to meet concepts and ways of thinking and doing that are also circulating. So if you think about this very powerful notion about abolishing the police in the USA or um, the movement towards decolonizing the curriculum and the education system within the UK, you get the... um, the intersection of, of kind of fracturing and, and outrage with a kind of more sustained um, evolution of kind of concepts and ways of doing. Um, and it's their intersection which is powerful and which will also be um, met by a kind of counter resistance from the hierarchies of established power. And I think on a, on a kind of personal level, when we think about the possibilities in these fractures, the way we get those fractures is by having ways of thinking and doing that help us outside our kind of quotidian, boring, often like kind of closed in ways of seeing. Um, so if, if individually and collectively we, we end up feeling stuck, um, then we need practices that open us, open us up kind of individually and socially. And that's why for me, the arts has always been crucial, including the kind of um, powerfully imaginative works that that Michelle's kind of seems to be engaged in and you know to have Northlandias so we can through this imaginative space redream or rethink or reinterrogate where we are 
in the present. Um, and alongside art, it's activism, it's volunteer work, it's anything that kind of disrupts um, our kind of process of living, which can seem so hemmed in and stuck by the kind of necessities of working and indeed just surviving. And against that, we need the kind of the thrill and the fear of this fracturing, right? I mean, that's why, um, you know, one of the things I wrote about in Apocalypso was the feeling of being at a protest, because when we're at a protest, it's so different. Um, watching it on screen, we, we sense this kind of almost kind of bodily camaraderie, but also this kind of extreme precarity, this awareness of um, precarity or the frailty, not just of our individual bodies, but also the kind of social structures um, that we exist within, which can be changed, um, even if we feel that we can't, and also the precarity of our dreams and hopes. Um, and it's kind of like constantly working with all those different determining factors that makes this um, process of factoring really important if we are to see any profound or sustained change beyond the individual. Karis, I mean, if, if, if we're just opening up the conversation, one of the questions I wanted to ask is, you know, what do you, you know, what makes you feel hopeful? And I want to ask about your experience as in both kind of education and activism, and do, do those kind of sponsor a feeling of hope within your day-to-day? Hmm, that's a good question. The first book about teaching that ever made me feel like I actually had a place in teaching was Bell Hooks' Teaching to Transgress. Oh, and, so great. Um, yeah, and, and in it, she talks about teaching as a, a practice of radical love. And, and so, you know, I'm, <laughs> because teachers are humans and students are humans, we don't always feel that radical love in the moment. But generally speaking, that, that is what teaching feels like to me, um, any kind of creating an educational space. I think opening up a space for learning at its best uh, is, a, is always a learning together. And, um, and that always feels hopeful to me. To create the possibility of awareness that we are each responsible for our lives and we are each always in connection with the lives and learning of those around us like not even just in the classroom right in my neighborhood in in my town in my uh online communities you know there there is a this karen barad and donna haraway bring up this question of responsibility at the quantum level um that i think is really key to thinking about what what kind of practices of hope are inherent in teaching and education spaces. Um, so that's what I try to uh, feel into when I'm in those spaces to remind myself that I'm, I am also a human on the planet. And that means that I am imperfect and I don't know everything. And I have something to learn from the people that are here with me, whoever they are. And, and I also have something to share. And so sort of trying to dismantle the idea that one person has all the knowledge, I think, is really at the core of that practice, teaching as a practice of love and of hope. And that, I mean, that, thanks for that answer. That's actually, as we approach a new term as educators, <laughs> <laughs> at a trying time at best. Um, another Zoom term. Yeah, yes. another Zoom term. I mean, having, having a reminder that 
we're not service providers, you know, providing a kind of the commodity of education to our students, but rather the, this inherent kind of like community and responsibility that's integral to teaching and learning and the teaching and learning of both, you know, staff and students, even within the, the sorts of inevitable hierarchies that however much we just try and dismantle them exist to a certain extent within classrooms is actually, you know, a good it's currently two thirty, you know, a good two thirty PM pep talk for me as I, you know, at the end of the school I've got to carry on like planning my <laughs> syllabus. Um, and it's and, and it, it made me think, you know, you mentioned Haraway and she's got that idea of um kinovating, right? Like thinking about what our kin are, you know, on human and a non-human level, but also kind of innovating in our forms of kinship. Um yeah. and that can be as much kind of like ecological in the conventional sense of practice, but it can also very much be an educational one and how we think about our role of, as educators or uh, ones who don't, who are kind of enablers rather than transmitters of knowledge. Absolutely. Well, I'm really glad that Sam and Karis brought this up because this echoes what I was thinking. And there was a suggested question that starts with ecotopian must and my response to that is ecotopian must not become a pet project of the bourgeoisie. Mm. As us three sitting here discussing big ideas, discussing this beautiful printed book with our fancy machines, speaking fluent English across three continents, we have to remember that there are children right now around the world who cannot afford Zoom lessons because they don't have personal computers, they don't have access to Wi-Fi, or they're too embarrassed to show their home settings, or their homes are too noisy. And a lot of these children are even losing their only meal, the school lunch. So we have to remember that this world is shared by people who are not us, and also shared by animals and plants who are also clearly not us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that reminder, Michelle. Uh, that's certainly the case with the Zoom, the, the lack of access to Wi-Fi and computers in a number of small rural communities here in Vermont um, and, and across this continent. So uh, what, what are the ways that we entwine this reimagining into the concrete material problems of class and of race and of gender and uh, and governance. Uh, um, it, you know, one thing that this kind of feeds into that I think about a lot and has become very uh, become, if you like, foregrounded um, through the the process of the pandemic, is the way that um, structures of government. Will will flip things into a question of um, individual capacity or individual, you know, individual moral choices, which should not be so, which are ultimately kind of systemic and structural issues. You know, for example, you know, the classic example being with climate change. That actually, you know, if you if the you know the bourgeoisie kind of approach would be, oh, you 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 read a book like an ecotopian lexicon. And you, you know, you decide to eat less meat, but that that does nothing to the real profound 
um, structural inequalities to do with um, the production of food or greenhouse gas emissions to link to agriculture and elsewhere. And it's it's a it's a you know what Michelle said is a really important and profound reminder that for every kind of um, aspect of conceptual change or aesthetic approach, there there has to be kind of concomitant related changes within practice and within policy. Um, and I think actually it's it's the profound radical changes in policy which too often fall um, not even at the last hurdle but at the, fi- at the first one. And I suppose we're seeing this um, to a certain degree with the, with the current unrest uh, in the States, right? People think so much about interpersonal interpersonal racism that they do not think about the kind of the structures uh, and the policies and also, you know, and the technologies, which, you know, um, and thinking about the relation between those different aspects, between people's access to technologies for good or for ill, but, you know, whether they are laptops or AR-15s, is itself part of how we extend our conceptual changes into real world practice. I, I, I agree with you. I echo that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I also agree. I think what what I hear there is the the real emphasis from both of you on the difference between individual, essentially consumer choices around changing approaches to climate and climatological needs and interventions at the level of governance, policy, corporate management, etc. And and I think that that relationship between the individual and the and larger structures is absolutely key. Oh, I'm just thinking about how, I don't know, maybe this is this is something that I would ask you too, Michelle, is I, I think about the ways that I have made consumer choices knowing that they're essentially futile. <laughs> you know, I don't use plastic bags either, but I also know that my personal choice not to use plastic bags is, is a choice that is not only available to me because of uh, histories of class and et cetera, and I can afford other ways of buying things. I can buy in bulk, et cetera. And I also know that the problem is actually not just individual plastic bag consumption, right? I think it's it's not just about consumer choices. I think it's it comes down to your belief, at attitude, and ideology that fuel and drive all your life choices. I mean, Karis, if I tell you you're a PhD and all your hard work, all your study, all those sleepless nights would not make a difference in your life, would you have done it? If I know my plastic bag would not make a difference, would I do it? I think it's it's sometimes we do things in life because we really believe in it. If my projects will amount to nothing, no one will ever look at my art and no one will like it. Will I still continue doing it? Yes, I will continue making my works because that's what I believe in. And I think it's this strong belief that drives our actions and eventually your strong sense of belief and and that manif- that's manifested in your actions will change people, will change the world, whether it's a very small universe like your mother or a bigger universe that involves more people, we don't know. But I believe you should do what you believe in. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I was just that brings me back to this this thing that you said in your piece about uh, about being less certain 
um, and we don't know. We actually we actually can't know what the effects of our individual choices will be. And I think like so so what you're describing essentially is is not using plastic bags as a practice of hope. Yeah, I think it's 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 a manifestation of my belief in hope. You could say that. I mean, that's certainly why I that's that's why I teach. You know, I I can't I can't guarantee that the students will come away with this deeper understanding of um, the relationship between individuals and structures uh, when it comes to systems of power. <laughs> but, but that is my hope, and I and I have to do it because that's what I'm. It's one of the things in teaching that I'm committed to trying to offer people, right? Hmm. But that's also one of the nice things about teaching. You ultimately don't know what people will take away from your class. And that's actually much more hopeful than knowing that if, you know, knowing that they'd be able to list, you know, 10 important ways that, you know, hegemonic masculinity has been deconstructed in literary theory in the last decade um, is not a particularly like hopeful thing in and of itself. But you hope that things catch on and mutate in their minds and practices in different ways at different times and always knowing what what's going to happen is, you know can be productive of despair right that um it limits our notion of what is presently possible it can kind of sponsor or endorse a, a kind of uh, knowing cynicism which itself is a kind of inertial drag on possibility on hope and the sense that you don't know what might happen, even, you know, which is not quite the same as um, ignoring statistics and data and stuff like that, which, you know, I, I'm pro statistics and data and thinking about them hard. But also, you know, it's this crucial thing of being able to um, have a sense that the unexpected might arise, um, that things might be better, um, but they will be better in a way that we have not yet necessarily dreamed of or thought of. Mm. Yeah, if there's anything that 2020 has taught us, it's that the unexpected will arise. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm just looking back at the notes that we made together before this conversation, and I'm noticing that um, Michelle highlighted the sense of wonder that was important to her in Sam's piece. And Sam, you you mentioned uh, this idea of this book as a spell book. And so I wonder if that, that uncertainty is also rests in that sense of wonder, curiosity, and the sense that we can weave spells for a different world. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's the great thing about casting spells is you conjure something up, but you never quite know what it is that it's going to be conjured. You know, that if we learn nothing from like the Sorcerer's Apprentice, that um, spells themselves aren't under our, our control. With the dire sense of environmental doom, how does one make any life decisions? from small lifestyle decisions such as diets and travels to having children or not? Um, so if I was to answer honestly, I would say that I make decisions badly and um, inconsistently, <laughs> but with a consistent hope that I can do better. You know, so there's lots of things I've decided, I've decided that, you know, that I'm going to be vegan or that I'm not going to fly, that I fail at. Yeah, there is hope. But that, you know, and that that failure sometimes makes me become super cynical because I'm like, well, if I can't do it, um, not that I'm particularly good at sticking sticking to anything, and that itself is quite an arrogant thought. But I think um, if you're going to 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 make these decisions, um, which can seem quite doomy, you also have to ask yourself like, where can the joy be accessed? Right, a sense of doom can be an important spur to 
to stop the apocalyptic, but you need a sense of joy as well. You know, um, you need you need bread, but you also need roses. Thank heavens you mentioned uh, uh, joy and pleasure because I I also I have no idea how to make choices right now. Um, I'll just be honest. I. I I did choose a few years ago not to have any biological children, and um, that was partially about climate change and partially about other things. But that choice, I mean, the choice itself is deeply fraught with other people's opinions about women and bodies and children and the world. So, so I think it's not just it's not just about the sense of environmental doom. It's that any choice that we're making, especially if it's one that goes against the status quo, comes with a, a, a social price tag on it and uh and the consequences you know <laughs> pretty consistently people used to used to ask me um uh when i was going to have children and and why why i chose not to when i would tell them i chose not to and i feel like it's not you know that that in particular is not something i feel like anyone should need to justify uh or diet for that you know these these particular ones that you raised in the question but I, but i think back to the 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 matter of joy <clears throat> I've learned a lot from Adrian Marie Brown and the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute about what it might mean to refocus decision making and change work towards pleasure and joy, to, to ask ourselves, what would it mean if we were not only fighting against the things that are wrong and bad, but fighting for pleasure, fighting for a world where people have access to pleasure and joy. And so these days, I think about a lot of my choices through that lens to say, rather than making a decision that is only based on how will this help me survive? (laughs) Um, Will this be good for the world or bad for the world? Good for my local ecosystem or bad for my local ecosystem? Um, Thinking about those things, but also then weaving in the question of how much pleasure and joy and for whom will each of my choices enable? You know, it's not an easy calculus to make, but none of these are. I would like to answer my own question with a graphic novel. I quote in almost every public presentation I give, including this one. It's by Philip Squasoni. The title is Climate Changed with a D. Climate Changed, A Personal Journey Through the Science. So it's an autobiographical graphic novel of this comic artist who gets an assignment on climate change. So the narrative has two parallel streams, two parallel narratives. One is himself interviewing a whack of experts on climate change. Very informative, very academic, could be a bit dry, could be a little bit difficult to understand. And then there's also the personal narrative, which is his own journey throughout this project that eventually changes his own life and his life decisions. One, he is in a committed relationship And because of this project, he decides not to take any travels except for once a year with his girlfriend. So he doesn't completely deprive his partner of pleasures in life. But what's really, really touched me is towards the end, 
he decides to attend a comic festival. So throughout the book, he has turned down many international invitations to attend comic festivals, exhibitions, international cultural exchange events, because he wants to reduce his carbon footprint. And eventually, he decides to attend a festival in the neighboring country. I forgot whether it's France or Belgium, because instead of taking the plane, he can take a train and a ferry and other obscure transportation methods. And that dramatically reduces his carbon footprint, even though it takes way longer. And that's how he justifies attending this festival, fulfilling and achieving his professional potentials while also protecting the environment. And every time I think back on this, I ask myself, am I willing to turn down important professional opportunities so that I can take care of the environment? And I would be honest with you, if this were not the COVID year, I would not be in Hong Kong right now. And I would be traveling to three, five, seven countries this year. And probably so would both of you. So I I don't have an answer. This moment in the book is one that I constantly think back on because what am I give up in order to take care of this planet? I'm really glad you mentioned that book, Michelle, because that is on the great list of books that are currently staring at me from my bookshelf. It's amazing. I I quote it all the time. And you can tell me what country he's actually traveling to. I never remember. (laughs) So um, I'm really excited to engage more with both of your work. And I'd love to know, Michelle, where I can find your artwork and connect with you more. Uh, Thank you, Karis. Well, I think the easiest way is through Instagram. And you can follow my journey. The the Instagram handle is Michelle K.S. Fong, spells M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E, K for kind, S for snow, F for funny, U-N-G. Or you could also go to my website, which is michelleksfong.com. Karis, I have loved this conversation, um, plant time and everything else. Where can we find out more about you and your amazing practice? Oh, thanks, Sam. I, the, the best way to find me is at my website. It's karisboke.com, C-H-A-R-I-S-B-O-K-E.com. <laughs> uh, and I'm also on Instagram under my name, but uh, more of my work is available there at my website. How about you, Sam? Um, I think the best way to um, find out about me and my work is through um, my profile on the University of Liverpool's website. Um, You can probably get there by just uh, typing my name, which is Sam and then Solnick, which is S-O-L-N-I-C-K. I'm also on Twitter at Sam Solnick. Um, And I should also just quickly plug uh, the University of Liverpool's Literature and Science Hub which is uh, an, in- an initiative and a centre um, at which I work at the University of Liverpool. And you can find out about us on Twitter at LitSciHub. 
Thank you yeah, so thank much. Thank you all. This is really well lovely. <laughs> For more information, visit ecotopianlexicon.com.